Good morning, Bridge Church. A special welcome to those of you who are joining us for the first time today. You're maybe uh, new with us. So, so good to have you with us. And uh, welcome to those of you who are joining us by live stream. We're glad that you're with us in that way, too. Uh, last week, I talked about Veggie Tales, this uh, animated kids. Was there clapping just now for Veggie Tales? Yeah. It's just like childhood nostalgic memories just coming to the front. Uh, so, Veggie Tales is an animated kids video series. Uh, for Christians, that in its early phase of existence often depicted classic Bible stories with vegetables. And uh, one of my favorite and most memorable scenes from VeggieTales growing up was the story of Joshua and the walls of Jericho. And uh, Jericho is manned by these little French peas. And these little French peas think it's incredible that the Israelite vegetables think that they're going to knock down the wall, right? Because they sing the song, keep walking, but you won't knock down our walls, keep walking, but she isn't going to fall, it's plain to see, your brains are very small, do you think walking will be knocking down our walls? So that was, that was, that was free, guys, that was, that was a free. Well, apparently last week you all heard my voice, uh, anyways. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, and then, and then, and then the, uh, the French peas rained down purple slurpees on the Israelite vegetables. That's actually my favorite part. And I just want to share it with you. So I think we have a video, right? Just like, I just want to share 10 seconds of joy with you. Lord, you are, you are great and you are good even when we don't understand your ways. 
And, and so I pray today, Lord, that in this text, that we would see your greatness and your goodness. God, that we would love you more, that we would honor you more with our lives. Holy Spirit, I pray that, that you would come and minister to us and speak to us in this time. I pray you speak through me, and I pray if there's anything that I say that isn't from you, Lord, that that, that would be clear, and that it could, it could, that could be discarded, but that what you speak, what you say to the Lord through your word, that, that it would sit with us, even, even if we at first reject it or, or don't feel comfortable with it, Lord, that it would stick with us, and that it would do the work that you want it to do in our lives. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, uh, to set the, the scene a little bit, the Israelites had been slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. They were led out of Egypt through, uh, through Moses. God, God did all the work, but he chose to use Moses as his instrument. Uh, he brought them into the wilderness, gave them his laws, and as they came closer to the promised land, the land that God had promised the ancestors of the Israelites, uh, Moses sent 12 spies to check out the land. Uh, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And 10 of those spies came back, and they said, it's great, it's a great land, but there's no way we're going to be able to do this, because the walls are too big, the people are too strong, there's no point. Only two spies, named Joshua and Caleb, said, yeah, it's difficult, but if God brought us here, then, then he's going he's to do it, it's okay. Uh, the Israelites sided with the majority, or sorry, the majority sided with, well, yeah, the majority of the spies, which is not always a wise thing to do, and, and God said, well, because of your lack of faith, you're not going to enter the promised land, and told them they were going to wander the wilderness for 40 more years. During that time, Moses himself kind of messed up. God told him, you're not going into the promised land either, and so Moses died. Joshua, one of those faithful spies, assumed leadership of Israel's people, and brings them right here in, in Joshua 5, we're going to start on the, on the brink of entering into the Promised Land, or they've already entered it, now they've come to their first challenge. Uh, chapter 5, verses 13 to 15 of the book of Joshua, if you have your Bible, open it up there. 5, verses 13 to 15. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up, and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servants? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So they've come to Jericho, just on the west side of the Jordan River, uh, an important city that was kind of at a juncture, leading to a bunch of other important places. And Joshua's getting the people ready for battle, and all of a sudden he looks up, and there's a guy with a sword out, ready to fight, which would be an alarming sight, would it not? If you were like out in the garden and suddenly you looked up and there was a guy with a sword, maybe a little bit less likely of a, of a place than a battlefield. But anyways, it would be alarming. And, and Joshua isn't sure who this is. At first we read that it was a man. Then we read that it is the commander of the army of the Lord. And then we read that Joshua is supposed to take off his sandals because this is holy ground. So is it a man? Is it an angel? Is it... Maybe Yahweh, God, 
himself. Some people think that this is maybe the angel of the Lord, who is kind of a mysterious figure who pops up every now and then in the Old Testament, often seems to be identified with Yahweh himself. And so Christian interpreters for two millennia have thought that maybe this is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus before his incarnation. The text doesn't say any of that. It's all speculation. What's clear is that this man is worthy of awe and and reverence. So Joshua naturally wants to know whose side is this guy on? You know, I right away naturally think of a basketball analogy. If I'm playing three on three and... I don't know, for some reason, the, game, the game's outcome decides my life. I don't know what kind of basketball game this is, but, but that, the stakes are super high, and all of a sudden I look up, and there's Giannis Antetokounmpo. That's like the first time I've ever a- attempted to say that name in public. Uh, so he's there, two-time NBA Most Valuable Player, arms as thick as my torso. I want to know whose team he's on, because this guy's a game changer. Whoever his team he's, he's playing on is going to win the game, for sure. And that's what's going on here. This guy is, this is the game changer. Whoever side this commander of the army of the Lord is on is going to do pretty well. His response, I think, would have surprised Joshua. Maybe it surprises us too. He says, neither. I'm neither for you or for your enemies. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. See, when you read the Old Testament, that's assuming you do. If you read the Old Testament, which you should, uh, you may come away with the belief that God is primarily the God of the Israelites, that they're his chosen people, and that's true. But as we saw last week with Jonah, God in the Old Testament as well cares for all the nations. He's concerned about what happens in Nineveh. He's concerned about what happens every, everywhere on earth. He's not only the God of Israel. He's the God of all of creation. You see, just because Israel was God's chosen people and God loved them doesn't mean that God sanctioned or supported everything that they did. And if you're here today as a follower of Jesus, God doesn't necessarily support you or sanction you no matter what you do just because you're a member of a church or you can check off the spiritual boxes. He loves you. He wants to bless you, but he's not going to fight your battles if they're not the battles that he first and foremost is fighting. Do you know what I mean? And that leads to a couple of other implications, I think, of this. One of the worst things that you can say to anybody in our day and age is that you're on the wrong side of history. Have you ever seen this or heard this? The wrong side of history. Nobody wants to be on the wrong side of history. You know, you don't want to be a dinosaur. You don't want your views to be antiquated. You don't want your statue generations from now. And I believe you'll all do such amazing things in your lives. You'll all certainly have statues made of you. You don't want your statue like graffitied and torn down by your great-great-grandkids' friends. Right? You don't want to be on the wrong side of history. But think about what, this, what the person saying this is presuming. They are presuming to be the authoritative guide on where history is going. They know exactly the moral trajectory of the world. They're Nostradamus. They're a prophet. They somehow have this divine revelation. And they know which is the right side and the wrong side. See, biblically... It's 100%, totally, completely irrelevant 
if you're on the right side or wrong side of history in the eyes of others. It just doesn't matter. All that matters is that you're on God's side. Because he's the, he's the trajectory of history. He's the direction. He's the goal. He's the one who's sovereign over all things. So don't worry about keeping in step with culture. Only worry about keeping in step with God. It's about being on his side. Which leads to the final implication I'll say on this section, which is how we pray. And, and maybe you've heard a preacher say this before, but when we pray, I find that we often come to God with our ideas, with our plans already in place, and we say to God, God, this is what we're doing. We'd really like it if you kind of threw your weight behind this, you know? Like, get behind us, help us out, make sure this is going to work. Bless, bless what we're going to do. Which I, you know, maybe sometimes God does that, but I don't think that's the right way to pray. I think more, we should, we should come to God and we should say, if anything, we should say, here's what we're planning to do, but if it's not what you want to do, then, then correct us, lead us, close those doors. Or we come to God and we say, God, we don't know what to do and we, want, we would like to do what you're, what you're doing. We, we want to figure out what, what you're doing in the world and we want to participate with that. We want to join in with that. So show us that. It's not about getting God onto our side. It's about figuring out where God is and getting on his side. Do you know what I mean? It's not about worrying about what everybody else is doing. It's about what God is doing and joining in with that. Because if he is in something, then it's going to go well. It, it's, it's going to be blessed if he's already doing it. And Joshua knew if, 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 the, if the commander of the army of the Lord is, if, 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 if they're fighting the battle that God wants them to fight, then this, this army is going to be with them and God would provide, which is what we see in this next section. Uh, Joshua 6, verses 1 to 5. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven trumpets carry trumpets, seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout, then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So I, I want to talk a little bit more about Jericho here. Um, I don't know about you, but when I think about ancient cities, I have in my mind something probably more like medieval Europe. I think about like, uh, you know, Heath Ledger in A Knight's Tale, like, like just like people and animals and jousting and court jesters. Like that's kind of what I imagine. Jericho, though, was not like that. In fact, archaeologists believe that ancient Jericho had a circumference of about 600 meters. You think about a running track, right? A running track is 400 meters. So the whole city of Jericho was like one and a half running tracks around. That's really not very big for a city. In fact, uh, ancient Canaanite cities like Jericho seem to have mainly been military fortresses. They, they housed soldiers, uh, maybe the administration, the local rulers, the priests, that kind of thing. But the general populace in ancient Canaan lived in the countryside, not in, not in the city. So this is essentially a military fortress. 
and they have securely barred the gates. No one's going out, no one's coming in. The point of this verse, why we're told this, one scholar says, is to describe the seemingly hopeless situation confronting Israel, a people unskilled in the kind of warfare that was now required. Think about it. You've got this walled, impenetrable fortress. The Israelites are a ragtag group of ex-slaves who have been wandering through the wilderness for 40 years. They don't have resources. They can't build siege works. They don't have technical knowledge. They don't have any of the kinds of things you would need in order to actually defeat a city like this. They've got nothing. And yet God doesn't seem to be very bothered by that, does he? He says in verse 2, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. I'm going to do it. And then he gives Joshua, a whole bunch of really unconventional warfare instructions, right? Walk around the city once every, for, for six days. Seventh day, march around it seven times. The last time when the trumpets sound, shout a bunch, and that should take care of it. That'll do it. Well, I don't know why nobody else has tried this before. <laughs> I mean, obviously, that's going to work. <laughs> Look, it's not that God doesn't care about our gifts and our abilities, and our experiences, right? Think about Moses. Moses, in some ways, was an ideal man to lead the Israelites out of Egypt because he had grown up in Pharaoh's court to confront Pharaoh. Well, like, Moses knew that whole system pretty well, so in some ways he was ideal because of his experience. Paul, in the New Testament, he was a man who was advancing rapidly in Judaism, but he was also thoroughly educated in Greek ways of thinking, which made him an ideal person to communicate the gospel to the Roman world. In the New Testament, we read about how the Holy Spirit pours out gifts on the church that build up the church. Everybody using their gifts, these things are important. I mean, I think about the leadership of our church. I don't have a shred of a fiber in my body that cares very much about policy or paperwork. But I know those things are important. I know those are necessary. And so I'm so grateful that God has raised up people in leadership who have those gifts and abilities. But having said all that, it does seem, doesn't it, that God delights in using unlikely people for his glory that he delights in using our weaknesses to display his strength, that he delights in using unconventional methods to display his wisdom. Think about David, King David, the, the youngest of his family, a shepherd boy. That's the guy God chooses. Think about the disciples of Jesus, tax collectors, fishermen, not the cream of the crop by any means. These are the people that Jesus chooses. Even, even Moses He's supposed to lead the Israelites. He's got a speech impediment. Think about, about Paul. He's supposed to communicate the gospel. He was a hardened persecutor of the church. One of my favorite uh, mentors from church history, I've talked about him before, but there's a 19th century Scottish pastor named Robert Murray McShane. He only pastored in his 20s, actually. He died when he was 29 years old of typhus. But he saw revival break out in Scotland during the time that he, that he was a pastor. And, uh, and, and some of the older ministers around him resented the fact that God was using him as a young guy in his 20s. 
And this is how he responded. He said, had it been God's wish to give the glory to man at all, then indeed it might have been asked, why does he pass by older pastors and call for the inexperienced youth? See, I've already been a pastor for so many years. I'm done, guys. Over the, over the hill. I'm just, I've peaked already. That's it. Uh, this, no, this was not God's desire. God's desire is not to give glory to people. His desire is to display his, his strength, his power, his wisdom, so that we trust in him and not humans, created beings who can never fulfill the weight of our, the weight of our worship. So if God calls you to do something, if you know that, that he's called you to do something, then don't use the excuse that you're too young or too incapable or too inexperienced. If he's called you to do it, then he will provide. Just obey and follow through. Nate and I were talking about this a little bit this past week in terms of pastoral ministry. The last year and a half has been so challenging for all of us in various ways, but to lead in, in these circumstances has, has just raised, raises so many questions. And then this last week, uh, the announcements from our province raise even more questions and another challenge. And it just feels like, man, it would have been nice, it would be nice to go back like two or three years when, when leadership just was a little bit simpler, a little bit easier, where it didn't feel like you were constantly, I think it already felt this way, but, but a little bit less of feeling like you were constantly meeting up against challenges you simply had never faced before and didn't know what to do with. Like constantly coming up against walled fortresses when you've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. But I think God kind of says to us in that, look, it's not about you. It's not about what you can do or what you've experienced before. This is about me. And if I've brought you here, I'm going to do everything that you can't do. I'm going to take care of this. You just follow me. And here's what God did. I'm going to, I'm going to skip ahead just a little bit. Um, verses 6 to 14 kind of give uh, just the real quick summary. Joshua d- communicates what God has said to him to the Israelites and they follow through, they obey, they're, they're doing this, they're marching around, and then we pick it up on the seventh day in verse 15. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. For the city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you'll make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. And when the trumpet sounded, the army shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys." Now the headline for the Israelites that day was, was victory, right? God had brought them to this place and he had delivered them. 
He had supernaturally, miraculously caused the wall to fall, this challenge that they could never overcome. God had done everything necessary. That was the headline for them. But this is where we get to the really tricky, difficult part of the story, right? Because, because the story doesn't just end with the walls coming down and the Israelites being happy and some squash complaining about his contact lenses. The story continues from there and tells us that the Israelites went in and there was a battle and they killed everyone, men and women, young and old. And that this was actually commanded by the Lord, that the Lord had said, I want everything in the city devoted to me for destruction. So for a lot of us, the, 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 the headline is not divine-enabled victory. It's why the divine-sanctioned bloodshed. And for people who are hostile to the Bible and to Christian faith, this is maybe, this story and stories like it are, are maybe their, their m- most potent ammunition that they've got. Christopher Hitchens, a well-known atheist, says that uh, these stories, these, these pages of the Bible, give us a warrant for ethnic cleansing and for indiscriminate massacre. Richard Dawkins, maybe the most famous atheist in the world, strung together a long, rambling series of insults towards a God that he doesn't believe in. Um, just, and, and, and that's often quoted in, in anyone who's kind of writing about this because it's like, here's what people come away from this in terms of their view of God's character. And it's not just people who are hostile to the Bible. When I was 14 years old, I was reading through the Old Testament and, and probably, I probably came across this story for the first time other than the Sunday school version. And I remember reading it through and actually just weeping. This story and others in Joshua, just weeping. Because I could not understand how my, my vision, understanding of God that I had growing up could be reconciled with what I read here. I wanted to love God. I wanted to worship him. But I, it felt like this, that was an impossible task because of what I read here. Now what I'm going to say next doesn't solve everything. It's, it's not like you're all going to go away from this and be like, oh, it's not an issue anymore at all. But, but there are some things that I think help us to understand this a little bit better. One is what I've already kind of mentioned, which is that Jericho was not the kind of city we imagine it to be. Uh, That it was a military fortress, that it was primarily soldiers living there and those who kind of served them, like Rahab and and her family. In fact, uh, one scholar suggests there's no evidence for civilian populations in in, in Canaanite cities like Jericho. Um, so, so there's that. There's also uh, the argument that this language of men and women, young and old, was kind of stock language that was used in other ancient writings to describe total destruction. It didn't necessarily mean that there were a lot of, or any, women or children, but just as a phrase that described total destruction, if you know what I mean. Now, those are interesting facts, but they don't really get to the heart of the matter. To get to that, you have to go back to Genesis chapter 15. This is a story about Abraham. Abraham, the ancestor of the Israelites. God promised Abraham that that he would give Abraham's many descendants this land, the land of Canaan. And God told him in a dream in chapter 15 of Genesis that it wouldn't happen for quite a while, actually. Chapter 15, verse 16 God says to him, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back 
For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now the Amorites uh, were one group of people living in Canaan and were sometimes, that, that term was used as an umbrella term for kind of all of the Canaanites. So the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. What was the sin of the Amorites? Well, history tells us that the Canaanites uh, participated, engaged in child sacrifice. History also tells us that they engaged in a whole whole bunch of sexually immoral behavior, some of, which are, uh, some of which are approved in our tolerant society, but actually many of which still in our very permissive world people would find revolting and, and incredibly uh, inappropriate. The Canaanites engaged in it all because they believed that the more activity they engaged in, the more their god Baal uh, was stimulated to engage in his own activity, and that would make the earth a more fertile place. That was, that, those were the connections. And Baal's main partner in crime was a goddess named Anath, who uh, was said to drink the blood of her, corp- of, of her victims, who is depicted as being surrounded by corpses and with, a, with a, a, a necklace of skulls around her neck. So just a really delightful couple, you know? Just like the kind of couple you just want to hang out with and have dinner with. <laughs> that was Baal and Anath. Horrific and graphic sin driven by the worship of a horrifically and graphically sinful idol. Now, if God is truly God over all of creation, does he not have the prerogative to judge? When, when he as creator has made the world to experience his blessing and his life, and people live in ways that directly contradict that, that actually inhibit blessing and life, does God as creator not have the right to discipline and to punish and, and if you think, well, this is just an Old Testament thing. You know, in the Old Testament, God is like that. But in the New Testament, he's like soft and loving and gracious. Well, I have news for you. That doesn't really work here. Because if anything, God's judgment becomes clearer in the New Testament. It doesn't go away. It becomes clearer. Because now in the New Testament, we see not only that God does sometimes judge sin here and now in this world. Think about Ananias and Sapphira, if you know that story from the book of Acts. Sometimes that happens, but we see that there's actually an eternal judgment, an eternal reckoning for sin and injustice. Whatever acts of injustice occur in the world. And right now, Afghanistan is at the forefront of our minds, but there's other stuff. There's stuff in our culture, in our society at the moment. Whatever injustices, they will be reckoned with. God will judge. The astounding thing in some ways here is that he's so patient. That he says to Abraham, I'm not ready to judge yet. I'm going to wait like 400 plus years. I'm going to wait until their sin has reached its full measure. Some people even think that, that the Israelites circling Jericho six times uh, for, for, the six, or for the six days circling one time a day was actually a, yet one more chance for the Canaanites to repent. I, I don't know, but, but what's clear to me is that God's patience is evident in this passage that he has waited a very, very long time before he judges. He doesn't actually want 
people to face the consequences of their sin, but there comes a time when, when it's necessary. So there's that piece. There's another piece as well. God calls Abraham in Genesis 12. And he, he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And I'm going to make you a blessing. That's the whole point. It's not so that Abraham goes, yay, I get all, this, all these good things. It's to make him a blessing. God says, that, that's what I want to do. I want to make myself known through Israel. And he makes himself known through Israel by the law, by showing the nations how he wants people to live. He makes himself known by, by miraculously, supernaturally delivering Israel, like right here. And he makes himself known through Israel by sending his Messiah, his Savior, promising this, then sending this Messiah who will not only restore Israel, his people, but will open up the door to all the nations, to the world, to know God's salvation from sin. This Savior, who am I talking about, guys? That was, you were not very excited about that. But Jesus! He has come to take the judgment, God's judgment on sin, on himself, so that all who trust in him would not actually bear that judgment like, like Canaan, like the, like the people of Jericho, but would be reconciled to God and would receive forgiveness, would receive life, though they did not deserve it. And for all of that, that huge cosmic plan of redemption to happen, God had to establish Israel in this land. Here's how one scholar, Paul Copan, puts it. He says, for a specific, relatively short and strategic period, God sought to establish Israel in the land with a view to fulfilling this long-term, global, indeed, cosmic plan of redemption. God would simultaneously punish a wicked people ripe for judgment. Not doing so would have erased humankind's only hope for redemption. Another Old Testament scholarly type named Christopher Wright says, at some point I have to stand back from my questions, criticism, or complaint and receive the Bible's own word on the matter. And what the Bible unequivocally tells me is that this was not an act of God, that, that this was an act of God that took place within an overarching narrative through which the only hope for the world's salvation was constituted. You've got to locate this story in the big picture, in the, in the scope of God's redemptive purposes and plan. He, he established Israel in this land so that the nations could know him and know salvation. He punished a people that was ripe for judgment, that he had waited patiently for 400 years, and he revealed his miraculous supernatural power to deliver humans despite their inadequacies. Maybe that doesn't solve everything, but it does help me understand a little bit better what was going on here. Now, one more thing about this. It's not that, it's not that the land was, that it belonged to the Canaanites and that Israel dispossessed them. And it's not that the land belonged to Israel and they were just taking what was rightfully theirs. The land belonged to God. The land always belongs to God. And later on in the Old Testament... God sees Israel having succumbed to idolatry and he takes them out of the land. This is not about God's preference for one ethnic group. This is not about 
racism. This isn't, has nothing to do with ethnic cleansing, as Hitchens said. This has to do with faithfulness and judgment, and we see that even more clearly in this last section. So we'll go through this more quickly, but verses 22 to 25. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young man who had done the spying went in and they brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day. There's a little bit of a context there that, that the story refers to, or the passage refers to Joshua had sent two spies to infiltrate Jericho, totally different than the 12 that Moses sent earlier. Just as they were getting close, he sent two spies. They found refuge in the house of Rahab, who um, I guess the the Hebrew title for her and and some history suggests that she was probably like like running the tavern in in the fortress and I guess also served served in other ways too. Um, But in any case, that was kind of her role. Now, these taverns were renowned in the ancient world for being places of rendezvous, secret rendezvous, and political intrigue. In fact, one ancient kingdom forbade any taverns being built near the city walls because of treachery exactly like this. So Rahab shelters these two spies, and they promise her that when the city comes down, they're going to rescue her. And here at the end of Joshua 6, we find that's exactly what happened. They rescued Rahab and her family, and she lives among them to this day in the perspective of the author. Now, this is not the last time that we hear about Rahab in the Bible. If you go way forward to Matthew chapter 1, there's a genealogy. And these are some of the lines from that genealogy. We read, Salmon, the father of Boaz whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. So Rahab, a Canaanite woman who had formerly served Baal and lived as a prostitute, not only was incorporated into God's people, but I guess became the great Was it the great-great-great-grandmother of King David? And, And then a few verses later in Matthew 1, we read these lines. And Jacob, farther down from Rahab, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Again, a Canaanite woman formerly lived as a prostitute who is the ancestor of the man who raised the Messiah of God, Jesus, the one name given under heaven by which people can be saved. This is what God does. No matter how people have lived, this is the power of God. And I think actually, would you agree, this is a power that in some ways is even more impressive than the power to bring down some walls, is the power to take sinners, take broken, twisted sinners, and to redeem them to save them, 
to wash them clean and to make them into a blessing to the whole world. Is that not what God did for Rahab ultimately through Jesus? And God's done that with some of you. He has taken you and and saved you and redeemed you. This is the power of God. All it requires is the decision to throw our lot in with the God of Israel. That's what Rahab did. She decided to throw her lot in with the God of Israel instead of with Baal, and that resulted in her salvation. And this morning, if you make that decision to put your faith in God instead of the gods of this world, but the God of the Bible, even if you don't understand everything about him, there is salvation and healing and redemption for you. Which kind of brings us full circle, doesn't it? Because again, in the end, it's not about getting God on our side. It's about figuring out what God is doing, discerning that, having that revealed to us, and then responding to it by participating with him, by joining him in that. For Rahab, it meant that if she were just to do what everybody else was doing, she would have continued serving Baal and she would have defended Jericho. But instead, she put her faith in the God of Israel. At the very end of Joshua, Joshua gathers the people Uh, One more time, after all the conquests, after all the battles, and he issues them a challenge. He says, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your 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 ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. What is your decision today? Will you serve the gods of this world? Will you, will you refuse to serve the God that has, that, who has revealed himself to us in the Bible and through Jesus because you don't always understand what he's up to or you wish that he would use different people or different methods? Or will you trust in him? Will you turn to him? And know his salvation today because he has delivered you from the greatest of enemies, from sin and from death. I want to pray with you and then we'll we'll sing one more song in response. God, I thank you for your revelation to us. I thank you, Lord, that you have shown us who you are, and and we don't understand everything about, about who you are. But God, we we believe that you are the God not only who, who judges justly, but the God who saves and has mercy, though we do not deserve it. You did that for Israel. You delivered them, you delivered Jericho into their hands, though they did not deserve it. And you have done that for us, Lord, in delivering us from sin and from death, from the fear of of death, from all of these things, Lord, that the world is held in bondage by. Jesus, you have set us free. You have caused those walls to come down. So, Lord, today I, I, I say that I want to serve you.
Lord, I want to throw my lot in with you. I want to be on your side. I don't want to just be on the side of the majority. I don't want to just do what other people are doing. I want to do what you would have me do. I want to be on your side, God. And so we pray that you would continue to show us, Lord, that you would keep us close to you, that we would walk with you as a church, as individuals, Lord. And I do want to pray, Lord, for any who are with us today who do not yet know you, who have not yet made that decision to put their trust in you and are still kind of serving the gods of this world, still trying to do what the world thinks is right. And I pray, Lord, that you would give them the courage and the strength, Lord, and, and, and the, the ability to trust in you today. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.